You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning and uh, welcome Grace Church and friends uh, from wherever you may be uh, watching us this morning or perhaps later. Uh, it's just wonderful to be together again as we work our way through Daniel. So we're, we're still in Daniel today. We're going to cover uh, Daniel chapter 9 and I want to talk about learning to pray in hard times. The majority of this chapter is actually a prayer, and we're going to look at it in some detail. And you know, hard times are often the times that we really do learn by necessity to pray, and that's the kind of season we're definitely in right now. So this, I think this lays uh, over really well where we are in our, in our world right now, needing to pray, and uh, the prayer here is a powerful example. You know, this prayer, as we think about it, it really, uh, it really addresses one of the big theological questions. Here, here's a big theology question uh, that often comes up, and it has real practical implications. Uh, and this is the question. If God is sovereign, why pray? In other words, if God rules over all, if God is in control of everything, if, if God has planned out the story ahead of time, if God is going to do what God is going to do, then why bother to pray? Do, do our prayers really have any effect? Well, in the passage we're looking at today, we're going to find Daniel praying fervently after he already knows what God is going to do. He knows what God is going to do, and yet his response is prayer. So I'm going to read this in sections today, and we'll begin with verses 1 through 11 in chapter 9. And so let's read along there. This is God's holy word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. 
and have obeyed the voice and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us, his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Well, before we look at the prayer of Daniel, I want to look at two very important things we find out in the first couple of verses. The first thing we find out is that Babylon has fallen. <clears throat> Darius the Mede is now the ruler, uh, and they have the Medo-Persian Empire has come in and taken over uh, Babylon. And so the first thing we note is that Babylon has fallen. And this is key because the falling of Babylon, the judgment against Babylon, meant that the time of exile was to come to a conclusion so the people of God could return to Judah. The second thing we find out is that that very fact has been confirmed for Daniel as he's reading the Bible. So the, the first couple of verses tell us that, that Daniel is reading the prophet Jeremiah. And so he's got the scrolls open, he's reading, and he finds in the reading that Jeremiah says the time of exile will be for 70 years. He mentions this in Jeremiah 25, he mentions it in Jeremiah 29. Uh, so on more than one occasion, Jeremiah says that after 70 years, the people will be restored. So with the fall of Babylon, with them approaching that timetable, Daniel knows the time of exile is about to conclude and they'll be returned uh, to Jerusalem where they obviously are from. And so what is his response when he knows what God is going to do? He knows by the scripture God has given him a timetable. So what is his response? Well, God is sovereign. God is going to work his plan. But Daniel responds with prayer. Ian Duguid in his commentary on Daniel said, to the question, if God is a sovereign God, why should you pray? Daniel would have responded, it is because God is sovereign that I pray. It was precisely when Daniel read in the scriptures the plan of God to judge Babylon and restore his people and saw the sovereign plan starting to be put into effect in history that he lifted up his voice in prayer. It was because he was confident that his sovereign God would do exactly what he had promised to do that he poured out his heart to him in fervent prayer. You see what Duggett is saying about the passage and what is obviously true about the passage. is It is the awareness of the sovereignty of God to speak ahead of time what he's going to do. It is the, 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 the truth of the greatness of God that is an incentive to prayer, not a hindrance to prayer. And this is especially true in crisis, isn't it? When we are in crisis, as many of us are today, when we are suffering, we need a great vision of God. When you are suffering, you want to pray to a God who is what the Bible reveals, the God who is in control. You don't want to pray to the God whose hands are tied, to the God who is limited and who is subjected to the will of man. You want to be able to pray to the sovereign God who does, as the psalm says, who does what pleases him. You want to pray to the God who can make a difference. You see, here's the reality. The greater your God, the greater your prayers. Daniel turns in prayer because he has confidence that God is sovereign and God is great. The greater your God, 
the greater your prayers. That's true for all of us. Now let's look at the prayer a bit here. It's really broken into three sections. The first part of the prayer is a confession. So before he begins, he tells us that he is seeking God. He says that he is in sackcloth and ashes. And in verse 4, Daniel even says he made confession. So this prayer is very clearly a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of repentance It's Daniel coming and opening his heart before God. Now, this is a bit surprising because if he's convinced that the exile is almost over, you would think the prayer would simply be a Yahoo, we're headed home type of a prayer. You know, thank you, Jesus. It's all over. I guess he wouldn't have prayed that, but you know what I'm saying. It's, he would, you think he would be excited that this is a prayer of thanksgiving to God, but rather he prays a real prayer of confession, and that's because he's responding to the greatness of God. Look at verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. He he prays to the God who is awesome and keeps covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties and the, the a binding agreement. And the agreement that God had made, the covenant he had made, was with the people of Israel. So he praises God who's faithful to his covenant. He praises God who has steadfast, that means unending love for his people. But in doing so, he very quickly thinks of the other party to the covenant. See, God has been faithful. God has had steadfast love, but God's people have been unfaithful. God's people have not had steadfast love at all. And so Daniel is humbling himself and he is praying, remembering the sins of his people that led to the exile some 70 years ago. Uh, This is a sobering confession. This is not just some surface apology, but this is a deep confession of sin. And he speaks about sin so so starkly, so repetitively. Many of us in our culture would be very uncomfortable with this, even in the church, that he's calling out sin so strongly among his people. This is what he says. Let me just give you the terms that he uses. In verse 5, he says, we've sinned. He says, we've done wrong, verse 5. We've acted wickedly, verse 5. We've rebelled, verse 5. You see that in your text. We've turned aside from your commandments and rules, verse 5. We've not listened to the prophets, verse 6. That means we haven't heard and obeyed your word. We've committed treachery against you. Treachery, that's verse 7. Treachery is a betrayal of trust is what that means. So God, you are totally trustworthy. We're not. Sometimes in times of struggle and, and suffering, you'll hear someone say, maybe you felt this. I don't know if I trust God. Daniel says, God doesn't trust us. God has no reason to trust us for we have betrayed his trust is what he says in this passage. We've sinned against you, verse 8. We've rebelled, verse 9. We've not obeyed the voice of God, verse 10. We've not walked in his laws, verse 10. We've transgressed your law, verse 11. We've turned aside, verse 11. We've refused to obey, verse 11. Fourteen references to sin in this passage when he thinks about God's faithfulness to the covenant. You see, the greater your God, the greater your confession, the deeper your confession will be. 
And notice that he, he, he speaks plural here. He speaks of our sin. He says, we have rebelled. We have not listened to your servants. Note this. This is, this is really, uh, well, this is convicting when you think about it. Daniel was just a teenager when the exile began and evidently a very godly teenager. So in other words, all of this catalog, 14 different references to sin in just seven verses or even less, uh, maybe six verses, this catalog of sin are sins that he didn't even commit. When he speaks of what the forefathers did, when he speaks of all the rebellion, he's just a godly teenager. He is identifying with the sins of his people. And we too should embrace this. We should grieve over the sins of the church. I can too easily distance myself from the sins of the church. I I don't do that. Or our history. Well, that wasn't in our time. I'm not associated with that. But Daniel connects with the church or the, the Israel, the old covenant church as it was, as it were. And he, he, he embraces his people and cries out to God with his people. You know, we oftentimes are much better at uh, accusing the world of sin rather than confessing the church's sin and our own sin. But if we have a great view of God, we will accuse ourselves and pray for the world rather than the opposite, accuse the world and just pray for ourselves. This hinders the mission of God. See, these people are returning to Jerusalem to be restored to their calling, to their purpose, which was to represent God to the entire world. This wasn't a time to celebrate Babylon's fall. Daniel could have prayed a prayer just celebrating the judgment of God upon Babylon, where he had lived for all of this time, the wicked nation. But he doesn't rejoice and celebrate the failures of the world or the judgment of God upon the world. Rather, he, he confesses sin. He wants to humbly repent so that as the people of God return to Jerusalem, they see their need of God. They see their own weakness and sin and vulnerability, and they are confessing their sin. Well, the second section is an affirmation, and it really relates to confession. It's confession, and then in verse 11, affirmation. Let's look at 11 to 14. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that were written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us, for we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there's never been done anything that was done, that has been done against Jerusalem, like what has been done against Jerusalem, rather. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. So now Daniel is affirming the acts of God. Rather than saying, God, how could you? What he's doing in this section is saying, God has done what he committed to do. It says, the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. 
Uh, that is what's actually happened. You see, God made a covenant with Israel. You can find the, the details of that in the book of Deuteronomy. And there were stipulations to the covenant. If God's people were faithful, he would bless them, protect them, secure them, prosper them in every way. But if they failed to follow him, if they turned after other gods and rejected him, the God who brought them out of Egypt and gave them the land, if they rejected him, then they would experience his judgment. Well, this is exactly what happens. They, they go after other gods. They leave him. They ignore him, deny him, turn away from him. And then he does bring judgment. He brings Babylon to attack and lead them into exile. And the point is that God is being faithful to the covenant. Daniel doesn't say, God, you've done wrong. Rather, he says, God, you've been faithful. Verse 13, uh, as it is written in the law of Moses, so just as the stipulations of the covenant were written in Deuteronomy, all of this has come, uh, this calamity has come upon us. So just as was written, God, you've been faithful. We often think of God's faithfulness when he blesses us. Isn't God faithful? I was blessed in this way. Daniel's saying, isn't God faithful that he was faithful to the covenant, even in acting to bring judgment upon us so that we would turn to him? There was calamity because of their corporate rebellion. Now, does this still happen today? This is an important question. You know, some Christians are asking in these days, is the coronavirus pandemic, uh, is this a judgment? Is it a pestilence? Is it a plague sent as a judgment of God upon the world? Or is it a plague sent upon the church for uh, God's people as disobedience to him? Well, let me just say that we cannot make definitive statements about national or worldwide tragedies. It's very unwise to do so, to connect directly. This suffering is happening because of this particular sin, of this particular group, or something like that. We can generally say that death is always the result, in an ultimate sense, of sin. It was sin that brought death into the world. So in, in one sense, all, all suffering and sin is the result of being uh, in, a fall, in a fallen world. And so there is some connection. But to make a specific connection, we, we can't do that. We don't know. God doesn't tell us that in the scripture, like Daniel had a specific prophecy and scripture that spoke of it uh, in that way. So we can't do that. Our, our covenant is different. The new covenant is different than the old covenant. You see, our covenant is based upon Christ's obedience. Uh, our covenant is based upon Jesus taking the curse of our disobedience upon himself. So our, the new covenant is based upon the obedience of Christ and Jesus taking the curse for our disobedience. That's grace. So that's the, that's the covenant we live under that is different than the old covenant. However, I will say this, that at times of suffering, while, while I think it's unwise to make direct correlations, this happened because of this, unless we really know that in some kind of clear way, which we don't in this pandemic, uh, I would say that times of suffering are times to humble ourselves and to very much pray as he's praying here, to humble ourselves and to ask God to, ex to open our hearts, to reveal our hearts, and to repent, uh, to search our hearts and to repent of anything he shows us. I think what's happening in this season for many of us is we're reassessing our priorities. We're reassessing 
our lives. And the, we're on a, we were on a trajectory. We were on a direction. We were going down a road, on a pathway. We were living according to some storyline of what is the meaning of life. And times like this can be a wake-up call to us where we, uh, where we say, what am I living for? You know, even church, as I'm speaking to an, an almost empty auditorium, there's a couple guys in here with me, and I'm looking at a camera and wishing you uh, were here. Uh, but even something like this, thinking about the priority of physically gathering together, I'm praying that, that God is speaking something to us in these days and creating a hunger in our heart for what we may have taken for granted, for what we may have neglected, or for what we may have separated ourselves from entirely, the people of God. And God, I pray, is calling us back. This may be a time of repentance in that way, or a time of repentance for what was I really trusting in? What has my identity been in? Many of those things are removed from us in these days. And so I do think, while I'm not saying that the pandemic is the result like the old covenant stipulations of blessing and cursing, I'm not saying that, but I would say it's a time for us to assess and to evaluate because God does discipline us individually for our good. And he will use trials, even on a major scale like this, to work renewal and revival among his people. So let's, let's ask, let's humble ourselves and ask for his speaking to us in these days. Make this a season of repentance and return to him. Well, finally, there is petition in verse 15. And now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. As at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all around us. Now, therefore, O Lord, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Well, he transitions here into asking, uh, sort of making requests of the Lord. And what do we learn here about making requests? Well, I think there's two emphases. I, I don't want to talk about each request he made because all of our requests are different. So we don't say we'll make the same request maybe that Daniel did here. But there's two ways that he sort of frames up his request. The first is he looks to grace. He says uh, at the beginning, O Lord, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. That is the exodus. They were enslaved in Egypt and God freed them, did for them what they never could do for themselves. That is the Old Testament gospel. That's the gospel according to the Old Testament is that God rescues and redeems a people through the, through the exodus. It points to the work of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus similarly uh, rescues us from what we could never free ourselves from. The slavery, not physical slavery like they endured, but slavery to self, slavery to Satan, slavery to sin and death. He delivers us 
from that, not by parting waters, but by going to the cross and dying in our place, taking our sins upon himself, being buried and raised, and now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. This is the work of grace. The Exodus is the story that points to the ultimate deliverance uh, from sin that he gives us and then brings us into his kingdom so that we can live life under a new king, live life the way it was intended to be lived. So just as the Exodus is the point where God rescues by grace, so in the New Testament through Jesus, he rescues by grace. And that's how he prays. He starts his request, just as you have rescued us by grace before. Now, God, that's who you are. Do it again. So this is a way we always want to pray. We always want to be mindful of the gospel, always coming with confidence because what Christ Christ has already done for us as we look to the future. The second thing we we note here is that he prays for God's glory. So he says, you brought us out with a mighty hand, still in 15. You've made a name for yourself. God, you have made a name for us. Right now, we're a byword among the nations, but the nations know you as the God that overthrew Pharaoh and Egypt by your own power. So do that again. He's making an appeal to God's reputation. Verse 19, it's really powerful. Pay attention, Lord. Act. Delay not for your sake uh, because of your city and the people called by your name. So this is praying for the glory and the honor of God. Lord, we look to the past and we see grace and we're confident you'll act again in our lives, whatever our need is. And as we look to you doing this, we are aware that this will draw attention to you. This will bring honor to you. This is a God-centered approach to prayer. Let me ask you, do you pray like this at all? Jesus models this too. Our Father in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name. Is one part of the prayer is hallowed be your name. Uh, and, and that is, Lord, may your name be revered and honored as you act through me. This is a way to pray for the honor and glory of God to make an appeal. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on Daniel makes a real practical application to this. Listen, I think it's very good. He says, Daniel teaches us then that Yahweh's reputation should be the driving concern of our prayers. Our petition should be sprinkled with the incense of pleading his honor. He gives an example. What honor it will bring you, Lord, if that son of mine is converted? What praise will come to Christ if this marriage is is renewed. What credit to Jesus' name if that saint can walk through his hard trouble growing stronger and sweeter in faith? Do you see how he's praying? He's bringing a legitimate need and and desire. Save my son. Restore my marriage or this other person's marriage. Grant that person strength to walk through a very difficult trial with with a heart of grace and sweetness. But Lord, do these things. You love these people, so do it for them. But ultimately do it because it will reveal the glory of God. It will point to God who changes lives and grants salvation to undeserving people. This is a motive for prayer, the glory of God. We live to glorify God. So he makes his request based on past grace and the future glory of God. 
That's a great passion to pray for. And each one of these things, he says, that's what he's, he's praying in line of those two things. Lord, you know, we're a byword, but now would you listen, verse 17, and would you listen to our pleas and for your sake, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Lord, bless your people is what we would say. So that, so that you are glorified by a strong, healthy church, living in the love of Christ, filled with the Spirit, caring for one another, growing together, and extending the kingdom to our city and to all parts of the world by your power. And do that so that much is made of your name. That's the heart of prayer. Well, I'm, I'm going to preach the shortest section maybe in the history of the church that any preacher has ever addressed the 70 weeks. Uh, this is maybe the most controversial section of, of Daniel, um, but let me just give you a very super brief overview of what it is and what it means. I wanted to center on the prayer because that's the majority of the chapter. After he's done praying, Gabriel shows up and says, we he- God hears you. So that's a pretty amazing response. And he tells him, uh, look, Here's how it's going to go. There's going to be 70 weeks, in essence, to the end of the world. Now, this isn't literal weeks. It's figurative. But this 70 weeks are going to be divided into three different time periods. One time period will have to do with the people going back to uh, Jerusalem. But that's not going to be the end. It's not going to all happen. You know, uh, the ultimate kingdom is not going to be finalized just when you go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And then there's going to come a Messiah, but the ultimate kingdom won't be established by the first coming of the Messiah. That will come at his second coming. And the, the road ahead will be difficult. So he's basically saying there's a road ahead that is challenging, but God will come at the end, extend his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. But until then, you were always in exile in a sense. All the 70 of the weeks, 70 weeks are ultimately still a season where we are living, God's people are living, and we're not home yet. The new heavens and new earth has not been, have not been established. And so what he's saying is you can come out of exile, but that's not the end. In some ways, we're always in exile. That's true for the Christian as well. You can, you, can take the, you can take the people of God out of exile, but you can't take the exile out of the people of God. We are always longing for the final establishment of God's kingdom. And as long as we are in exile, we speak the language of exile. And the language of exile is prayer. And it's what we hear right here. If we forget God's greatness, Daniel remembers. If we forget God's greatness, we won't pray big prayers and we won't see big answers to big prayers. If we forget God's holiness, Daniel remembers. If we forget God's holiness, our deep sinfulness, we, and our deep sinfulness, we will not pray prayers of deep conviction and repentance as we read here. We won't affirm his holy judgments and live in the power of the gospel of Jesus who took judgment in our place. If we forget how glorious our God is, we won't make great requests 
that he transform our lives, that he transform our families, that he transform our church, that he transform our city and our nation for his glory. See, the reality is the greater vision of God that you have, the greater will be your prayers, the deeper will be your confession, the more confidence you will have in God as you look and remember the gospel, that your motives will be in the right direction as you pray for his glory, for his honor, the asking him to answer for those reasons alone. How do we respond to a passage like this? Well, I can only say that I think we must expand our vision of God. I think that's the major problem in my prayer life and yours as well. We don't see our need and we don't see the greatness of God. If we really could be gripped by the greatness of God, I believe we would run to him in prayer. If we really were convicted of his sovereign power to do as he pleases for our good and his glory, I believe we'd be pouring out our heart to him. So that's what we need to do. We need to have a greater vision. We do that through his word. Daniel is reading the Bible and he gets this burden to pray. He's reading his Bible and he turns to prayer after he reads Jeremiah. So that's really it. It's word and prayer and then looking to God with great expectations. In these days, may we do that. May we take our eyes off our limited abilities and our limited reserves and may we look to God who is limitless and glorious and committed to our good and his glory in Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.